morning, Mr. Bassett. This is your wake-up call. Please move your ass. in a stampede once. 300 head going hell bent for the horizon. Now, exactly how many cows are required for a stampede, Earl? I mean, is it like three or more? Is, is there a minimum speed? I wish I stampede up your ass. Welcome to Guest Choice, where a guest chooses a movie and we talk about it. Today, we're talking about the 1989 B-movie suspense horror film Tremors. I'm your host, a man who has five years of food stored in my basement, and I'm looking forward to the end of civilization. My co-host is Guy, a man who decided to leave town one damn day too late. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. And our guest today is Ray Greer. Hello, Ray. <laughs> Hello, Ray. Hi, Ron. Hi, Guy. Hi. So, Ray, what is your connection to Tremors? Well, if we set the Wayback Machine far enough, I was on the visual effects crew that did all the miniatures for forward effects. So that didn't mean I was uh, with Tom and Alec out at Lone Pine doing the big puppet stuff because, God, mechanics were tough. <laughs> but I did hear all about it. No, we did. Anytime you see a worm moving across camera that doesn't have a principle in it, odds are really good it's one of our miniature shots. Huh. Unless it's underground and has a blue halo, that's not our fault. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, there's a 50-50 shot. It's my hand up the worm's butt. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. I have to say, I had a really hard time spotting the miniatures. And in fact, until I watched the behind-the-scenes stuff, I would have had no idea how many miniatures there were. So I think you guys did a really good job. The best special effects are the ones you don't see. Yeah, well, I watched the whole thing, and, you know, I I knew that you had done work on the movie, but I didn't know exactly what work you had done on it and until I watched the credits. <laughs> and then I saw miniatures, and I was like, where did they use miniatures? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've, we've been watching a lot of Doctor Who for this podcast, and some of the miniatures there can be rather obvious. <laughs> Stick out. Well, let me ask you, since you're telling this, one of the things we've really noticed is there's a physics problem with flame or water, where when you go miniature, none of the physics work. What you've noticed, actually, it's a scaling problem. Mm -hmm. um, well, water actually has one other thing. Uh, I, I discovered that working Darkman, but that's another story and another movie. Water, water finds its weakest point, which means not only is it a scaling problem when you try to make it wave or move or or anything it also leaks mm. my claim to fame on dark man was that i was actually able to build a pool for us to shoot the street miniatures that didn't leak so it was very exciting <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get into this world miniatures seems like an odd place to end up oh my god by accident hmm. if we set the wayback machine far enough uh, i had no idea or intent to get into the movie business, but I backed into it. So I used to make kids games um, for role-playing games back when that was a fashionable thing uh, in the early 80s. My artist 
who we used for covers, his big dream was to be a rock and roller, but he was tone deaf. So the next best thing was to make monsters. So he did his apprenticeship and he worked at several studios and did great things. And then he got his first contract and he had no problem figuring out how to make the giant dancing brain suits that were required. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, IVE's the brain. You want a bad movie? You can find it in video. However, he had no idea how to ship them to Toronto. He had no idea how to rent commercial space. He had no idea how to make a bank account. And because mm-hmm. I'd done small business, he said, hey, Ray, you want to come to L.A. for a few weeks? <laughs> so I came down in his little barrio, read the contract, and during that time, he got a phone call. And the phone call was from MTV. And they were doing a show called the Headbangers Ball, right? Big oh, rock and roll that. thing oh. in New York. And he said, sure, I can do that. And he turned to me at 9 p.m. and said, Ray, we have a job. And I said, okay, what is it? And he says, we have to make a giant condom to go over the neck of a guitar. And I said, great. When's it due? And he said, 7 o'clock. And I'm going, neat. There's a place in L.A. where I'm pretty sure we could buy one stock and just dress it up. Down at the pleasure chest. No, no. That's 7 a.m. at LAX. Mark. Mark Williams was his name. We don't have any supplies. We don't have any place to work. I'm hazy how we're going to do this. And then he proceeded to introduce me to the world of special effects. You make it. Are are we blue here? Can we be a little blue? We make this shit up as we go along. (laughs) So I went to several studios that he had worked at. Several of them working late. I was the guy that had to ask, can I borrow a cup of latex? We found on the side of the road a glass top coffee table with one of the panels broken out. That's what we used to cast on. I found my very first late night 24-hour Safeway. The first one was in Hollywood. We actually found a musician to harass that he knew from a band. We bought Mylar balloons because that was the packaging, right? We got it done with uh, hair dryers and heat guns at five in the morning, drove down 405, got there just in time for really bad traffic, handed it over, and then decided we'd sleep on Venice Beach for a while because there's no sense trying to drive back home into the valley. So I knew this was going to be an interesting time. And it was. So several bad movies later, I ended up getting to work with Bob and Denny Skotak, who were founders of Forward Productions. They were just coming back from a break and wanted something easy to do. And we had just gotten this Roger Corman contract uh, to do a thing called Lords of the Deep, or as we endearingly call it, Lords of the Cheap. (laughs) And I still don't know how Mark did it because he knew these guys from days of old that they came in and led the miniatures effort to do the submarine miniatures wet for dry for this bad, bad movie. And I worked at the bench next to Bob Skotek, who's a flipping genius and has an Oscar for these things. <laughs> so I absorbed it like a sponge. Actually, it was during that film that he taught me how to break 
walnuts with his Oscar. We were at DC Fontana's house and she was making Christmas cookies and she was out of walnuts. So we had to fix the problem. Actually, come to think of it, I think it was Denny's Oscar because she and DC Fontana were married. But be that as it may, I learned how to break walnuts with an Oscar. So what is wet for dry? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, if, if I use buzzwords that don't, don't stick. Um, so you realize that we take liberties with effects, right? The idea that if it were in fact down deep in the ocean, you wouldn't see anything. This makes for a bad movie. Well, you could do it like they did on the abyss and shoot it underwater at huge expense. Mm -hmm. Or you could do it like a Corman movie and you put a lot of bee smoke in the air and run it through some filters and it looks like it's underwater when you shoot it at a slow enough speed. Mm -hmm. And when you shoot it at a slow enough speed, what it means is you've sped the camera up, right? You're shooting more frames rather than fewer frames. The fewer frames you shoot, the faster you move. A while back, I became a certified diver, and one of the things you can do is get a deep certification for going way down, and I never bothered going for that because the advice I got was, yeah, as you go down, it's dark, you can't see anything, it's a stunt, you're not going to get anything out of this. Yep. Do you have any connection to, like, stop motion, the Ray Harryhausen sort of stuff? Well, sort of. Um... I once did uh, a miniature for one of the Mouse on the Motorcycle movies. I, I did stuff for Ralph S. Mouse. And I helped with some of the gross stop motion they did with an actor. But no, I, I worked with a bunch of people who did stop motion for this thing. And I'm here to tell you, it takes a certain talent. Because it's eight hours of skull sweat for a minute of film. Mm. For a film we're going to watch way, way in the future, I ended up watching one of the Ray Harryhausen ones, and I knew about him, but mm -hmm. I was blown away when I watched, like, the first Sinbad film, because I thought these would be cheesy effects, but actually it was really, really good. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, modern effect quality level with the stop motion. Yeah, understand that people's palettes change, right? I am old enough to have been at the second screening of the first Star Wars movie at the Coronet, when none of us mm. knew anything about it. And mm. I remember the entire theater with the audible gasp for the jump into hyperspace for the mm. very first time. Uh -huh. You do that with a 12-year-old kid now, and it's like, yep, yeah, yippee, skippy, okay, fine. It's, <laughs> a, it's, it's something they see all the time. Right. And, and so that's it. You... Effects, particularly visual effects, are fooling the eye. They're, they're lying with technology. You're misusing things, right, <laughs> um, to, to perform something people don't expect to see. That's, that's a lot of what, what it is. Yeah. So before we get into the movie itself, what is your take on people working on this? Were they sitting around at the time saying, wow, we're working on a classic? Are you joking? <laughs> this is a movie about giant words. Come on. <laughs> All right. 
this is Ron Underwood's first movie. Okay, sure. Yeah, we we know him for City Slickers. We know him for a half a dozen really standout Hallmark films. He's a guy who did nine years of children's television workshop on The Electric Company. Okay? Oh, I love that. I like to not the than director Disney's you would expect to go kick it out of the park. <laughs> I don't know. That was a pretty funny show. It was. Uh... <laughs> oh yeah, we were all surprised. I mean, the guy. Okay, coming from the Roger Corman school, I know what cheap looks like. Ron was not cheap. Mm. He was incredibly thrifty. Mm. Right. He got all the value on the screen. Yeah. And he didn't get he didn't get flummoxed. Okay. <laughs> you know, something would go wrong. He'd stop, he'd take a breath, he'd think for a moment, and then he'd figure a fix. I mean, the absolute classic. So Forward Productions goes through a couple of evolutions during this process because this is when they're starting a company. So we're actually doing the first two shots in Mark Williams' studio space before they got the warehouse where we could do the really big shots, one of which is this entire polyfoam wall up the side of the building on scaffolding so that you've got that one shot where the worm comes crashing out and drops, drops to its death. Oh, the cliff face at the very end, yeah. Yes, the cliff face. The cliff face is all fake. We we built it there. Uh. And it was decided late that they really wanted a shot of the actors looking down the cliff face. Well, the day we were shooting that, the female stunt person that was supposed to double for, for Finn Carter didn't show. Well, this is a problem. We got two guys and none of the rest of us. And this is, mind you, four flights up on the peak of the building. So there's scaffolding to get the scaling right. So when you look up at the uh, where the hole with the worm comes out, the people will be in scale. So it's windy and it's scary as fuck. <laughs> well, Ron, who's you know he's he's, he's a short short guy says, give me a wig. And he puts on the clothes and goes up there and doubles for Finn Carter. That's the kind of guy he was. <laughs> and I have to say, I was looking at the end at this cliff with the hole in it where the worm had come out. And I was thinking, how did they do that? How did they get the hole in the cliff? Because I was still buying it mm -hmm. as an actual cliff. Right. <laughs> it's probably the same one you've got for the, um, the shot in the basement, right, where the survivalists shoot the worms, right? Because mm -hmm. there is, in fact, a big and a giant up worm shot through there, right? Right. Well, that is my film debut. <laughs> because what you may not realize is that I ended up going through and doubling for Michael Gross because I fit his shoes and pants. Oh. <laughs> so the mechanics with the, you know, coming through the wall thing didn't work for shit. It was awful. So they said, okay, what do we do? And Bob Skotek said, well, we'll, we'll go old school. We'll do a whip pan. So, oh God, I don't remember Ivar's last name. Basically the, the set decorator sent over a bunch of tiles that he had used in the floor of the shop and a bunch of reference photos. We built 
part of the floor. I put on the pants and the shoes and kept dropping the gun. The camera would then whip over to the miniature and the puppet would break through the wall. Okay. And, and, and do its stuff. And then you would hear all the gunfire and then it would cut to the big dead one that you saw. And if we did it right, you believed it happened. And because you didn't notice there were miniatures, you did. So we win. What you don't know is that day that took hours, hours and hours for a simple shot. Because one of the truisms of visual effects is sometimes it goes smooth as glass. Other days, you can't buy a win. So there was a time when I dropped the gun on my foot and jerked away. There was a time when there was a hair in the gate. There was a time when we'd come back from lunch and the guy doing the puppeting had forgotten to score the back of the wall. So he basically had the puppet go bonk and all the miniature things fell off because he didn't break through. There was a time when the stops on the camera weren't set. So the whip pan went past the miniature onto the stunt people waiting to go through doing miniature stuff, kind of waving and smiling in the dailies because what do you do, right? Uh, so, so that wall. Takes and takes and takes. Yeah. That cinder block wall, that wasn't one-to-one scale then? In Lone Pine, they had one that was. And they tried to break through it that way with their mechanical puppet with a bulldozer behind it. Oh. It worked poorly. <laughs> now, it looked great when it was there. I mean, the puppet did what it was supposed to do. Big dead worm mm-hmm. through all. Solid. But the believability was weak, so we did a miniature shot for that one. Well, that so so the fiberboard pegboard with all the tools hanging on it, that was also miniature, I, I assume. Because that, that bends out. That was, that was very well done. <laughs> I did not well, thank spot you. that at all. <laughs> One of the things they mentioned in the extras is when you're doing miniatures in a normal scene, if you need a tackle box or something, you just go to the store or to the prop department and you get a tackle box. But when you're doing miniatures, you have to create a miniature tackle box. And they mentioned that there was a stool that was supposed to get knocked over and destroyed. And they spent more money creating that miniature stool than would be the entire budget for many B movies. And they were like, can we please not destroy the stool because we spent all this money on it? <laughs> They're not wrong. It, well, it's, it's funny. Your eye will recognize something out of scale. Okay. So you and the audience don't know why it's wrong. You just know that it is. Right. The single worst thing to do are automobiles. Because scaling on automobiles is something that you see every day and you have an image in your head and you don't know why it's not right, and you don't care, but it takes you out of, out of the scene. So we start out with Kevin Bacon, who is playing Valentine, and he's urinating off a cliff. And first of all, there's a spoiler here. This cliff doesn't actually exist for a film that's almost 30 years old. They did a really good visual effect there. But also, I think this is a brilliant way to put in your mind the fact that there is a cliff, which is going to come into play about 90 minutes later. But it's not done in a way that says, hey, this is important. Mm -hmm. It's just there. Well, it also sets the tone, right? This is a little working man 
kind of character role and and a little bit humorous and yeah exactly and then he goes back to his truck and there's a guy in the back of the truck who is fred ward who's an amazing actor who's been in a huge number of films here he's playing another working class guy and he's sleeping in his sleeping bag and valentine kicks him out of the truck wakes him up makes him think something's wrong he yells stampede and that's uh worth mentioning because it, at the end there's a little callback to it that's true stampedes will become important <laughs> <laughs> then they use a fancy lighter to light up some cigarettes not that the lighter won't come into play later <laughs> yeah that's again echoed echoed for the finale which by the way they had to re-add because they not not to jump ahead the kiss was something they had to reshoot <laughs> oh no couldn't yep i have notes about that yeah. And now they argue about who's supposed to make breakfast. No breakfast? I did it yesterday. It was bologna and beans? No, it was eggs. I did eggs. Over easy. The hell you did? Bologna and beans. It's your turn. I just now realized uh, the irony of bacon making breakfast. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And they then debate leaving town. So the town they're in is Perfection, which has about 14 occupants, I think. Yep. Now, understand that if you ever see crew jackets for the first Tremors, they're going to be jeans jackets with Beneath Perfection stitched in the back. (laughs) There are no Tremors jackets. They renamed it later. (laughs) So Beneath Perfection was the original name or the working title. That's correct. Okay, cool. The other one is when they were casting, Fred Ward got the role, but the studio was trying to push James Garner as mm. as the uh, buddy guy. Now, fortunately, he wasn't interested because I think this is superior casting. He would have been pretty old. Yes, he would have, but that's what make it him crotchety. You know, it's a working mm. man movie, and they wanted a a name that kind of you know balanced out. Because at this point, Kevin Bacon's career was not what you call overwhelming. Hmm. You know, he had Footloose, and then he had a bunch of duds. <laughs> so. yeah. Also, Fred Ward, probably later, though, was in some pretty highbrow stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See, the problem is, yes, he may, but he also did to cast a deadly spell. So, you know, I'm I'm, I'm torn. <laughs> <laughs> so, first of all, Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins, which is a really trashy film, but it's fun. Classic. So I really don't know whether you guys still play the Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon game, but you do realize that by knowing me, your Bacon number is two, and by inference, your audience is now Bacon number of three. Oh, very good. It's good to know. (laughs) Terrific. (laughs) So just to show where they're at in life, it turns out it's garbage day. So it's the day where they get to handle lots of garbage. And Kevin Bacon slash Valentine tries to get out of the garbage thing by pointing out there's a different task they could be doing. But Fred Ward says, nope, it's garbage day, so we're going to do garbage. So they're driving along, and they almost pass a person on the side of the road. And then they realize it's a new student who happens to be a female student. (laughs) So they do a hard 90-degree turn because... Kevin Bacon is really interested in meeting any new females in the area. Makes sense, because really, you know. (laughs) 
And as they're approaching her, he's describing to Fred Ward all the attributes he wants in a woman. You will have long blonde hair, big green eyes, world-class breasts, ass that won't quit, and legs that go all the way up. Which are maybe not the most admirable thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He, He wants legs that go up to there, that sort of thing. He does mention green eyes, and it turns out she's got those. So that's good. Well, they, they were looking for a, a believable grad student, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. And as I understand it, Finn Carter really didn't want the role. I mean, she read for it and stuff, but it wasn't until she heard Heather Locklear wanted the job that she went, oh, no, no, I'm doing this. Because <laughs> um, apparently she's competitive. Uh, no, no. I never, never actually met her, so I can't say it. It's all hearsay, but. Right. Yeah. Right. She, uh, and I don't know her career and what else she's done besides this, but she was really perfect for this role. Mm-hmm. What do you think Heather Locklear? I mean, right. she would, yeah, exactly. That's it. They were looking for somebody all American. I, I believe she came out of daytime soap operas. If I remember, mm-hmm. I don't know what she's done after that, but you know, she, she was really good from what I've heard. Um, easy to work with. And she's a seismologist, and I think she's believable. Again, Mm -hmm. Heather Locklear would not have been believable. Mm -hmm. Not a chance. (laughs) Not a chance. A lot of casting in this film is really tight and really good. Oh, yeah. Of course, Kevin Bacon is turned off immediately because she has sunblock on her nose, which makes her look unattractive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's not at at her best presentation-wise. She's got, like, I think a big floppy hat and baggy clothes and you know just she's not, on a dig yeah 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 I, I mean she's dressed appropriately it's just it's not uh it's not <laughs> valentine attracting material <laughs> but it's interesting that at the end of the conversation she happens to rub her nose and realize the situation and yeah she's seems to feel it wasn't her best moment so as they're driving away Valentine expresses his disinterest and uh, Fred Ward disparages him from being shallow. I think he, I think he mentions that he's more or less just sworn off dating altogether. Something to that effect, doesn't he? I mean, perfection uh, is not a hotbed of, uh, of activity. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. For some reason I, I could be misremembering, but I think that Earl's character seemed more cynical about the whole thing, but he was still encouraging Valentine to, you know, go and chase the ladies. Yeah. But maybe they can make it out to Bixby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I have noticed this in my life and they very much reflected in this film, which is it doesn't matter where you live. There's always the big city. Mm -hmm. So I'm in Cupertino, California, and the big city is San Francisco. When I lived in Kelowna, Iowa, the big city was Iowa City. So there's always the city you want to travel to that's more sophisticated than the place you're in. Right. And in this case, it's Bixby, which I assume is twice as big as the place (laughs) they're in. It has a real bar. (laughs) (laughs) So Valentine and Edgar head to the town store, which... Turns out to be named Wayne Chang's. No, it's Walter <laughs> Chang. Yeah. Oh, okay. Walter Chang's. Well, that's what I had written down. <laughs> and his store turns out to be the center of this town. 
In fact, there's only about two other buildings in town, so we're going to spend a lot of time in this store. Hmm. But you you got to know that anytime you've got somebody from the cast of Big Trouble in Little China, you've struck gold. <laughs> Originally, it was supposed to be a Vietnamese store until they cast him and <laughs> then they changed the name of the store. Yep. This is something very interesting to me. When they go into the store, we meet the local survivalist, which is Michael Gross, mm -hmm. who was the father on Family Ties. Right. And this is not what you'd expect him to be doing. Nope. nope. And apparently he really wanted this role. Mm. It's working against type. And his wife is Reba McIntyre, the singer. Mm -hmm. It's Reba McIntyre's first film. And they have a house out here specifically because they want to live in a place where when civilization comes to an end, they're going to be able to live it out. And what I find really interesting as we go along is that in most films, these would be the bad guys, you know, the people who at some point would get eaten and everyone in the crowd is supposed to cheer. Mm -hmm. And that's not what happens. These turn out to be very competent people who play an important role in keeping everyone alive as they go along. Mm -hmm. One of the things I like about this film is that I noticed this time there really aren't any bad guys, uh, other than the worms who are trying to eat them, but the characters are all good people. Well, we have one annoying teenager, but you know, he's a teenager. <laughs> what do you want? It's, it, it's, it's a community attempting to be, you know, to be good for itself. Mm -hmm. And, you get a small enough group like that, you, you have to be good to one another or, you know, people get buried in the desert. Uh, it's just. Yeah. So we're back in the desert and Rhonda, the student, is doing some stuff and her seismograph goes crazy. And then through the camera, we see the POV, the, the point of view of the snake. It's a snake view. And it's coming up to try and eat her. But she happens to get in a truck and drive away and nothing happens. Foiled. Yeah. A lot of the, there's a lot of these. Oh no, the, the grand POVs, absolutely. Oh, yeah. um, so here's here's the thing. This movie isn't. I mean, yes, there are special effects in it. It is not a special effects movie. It is a movie sold by the actors because the amount of screen time the creatures really have, you can measure in a handful of minutes. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's all about them reacting or them planning, or them doing a thing. And it's really, really good direction. <laughs> yeah, and I thought about it, and all these shots where we get the camera point of view of the snake, well, that's a scene where you don't have to actually have the creature. That's right. But you're experiencing the creature. Yep. How do we do it cheaply and give the audience the thrill? You have discovered the way. <laughs> And we're back with Valentine and Earl, and when they finish with the garbage, they move on to dealing with sewage, just to bring the point home. I got a kick out of that scene where the pipe is loose on the truck and it, they get sprayed with all that. Because when my basement backed up, you know, the sewage drain, uh, the water was, was black, just like the stuff that comes out of that tank. <laughs> <laughs> and I think... One of the things the movie is doing here, you know, they could be saying, oh, everyone out here is living their best life in the middle of nowhere, you know, making their own way. But, you know, these guys are not having a good time. We're blue collar heroes that everybody can empathize with and, well, sympathize with. Oh, yeah. Doing jobs they don't really like. <laughs> so they decide that this is it and they make their decision to leave for once and all. 
So as they're trying to leave town, just to test them, there's a doctor and his wife who are building a house for themselves. And the wife says, hey, I have a month of work for you to make this kiln for us. And I will give you free lunch every day. And when they're not impressed with that, she even says, I'll also give you free beer. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a month of lunch and beer and getting paid. But they still say, you know what? We're out of here. And they take off and they're proud of themselves. They've resisted the temptation of the sirens. (laughs) (laughs) And on their way out, they see this large electrical pole. And they see a guy they know sitting way up high on it. His name is Edgar Dees. And they're like, ugh, he must be drunk or something. We should go help him out. (laughs) And it turns out he's not drunk. He's dead. And he's been sitting on this pole for a while, and he's clearly dehydrated, and he's got a gun. So they have no idea what's going on. And eventually, when they talk to a town doctor... He tells them it would have taken this guy three or four days to die of thirst like that. So he was up there for a long time. Yeah. Which leads to the natural question of why would he have been up there for three or four days without getting down? And the answer to that turns out to be the pivotal point to the whole film. Right. And then we see a farmer and he's got a little enclosure with sheep in it and he's Mm -hmm. digging. And while he's digging, the scarecrow standing behind him suddenly falls over. (laughs) One of those uh, cheap special effects we were talking about. Yeah. (laughs) And then, of course, he's pulled under the ground. Mm -hmm. And later we see that all his sheep also got eaten. Yep. And meanwhile, Valentine and Edgar are still trying to drive out, and they pass two road workers. And they get to the point where the farmer was, and they see that all the sheep are eaten. So they get out to see what's going on now. And they find the farmer's head in the ground, and they freak out. So against their wishes, they head back to town to tell everyone, look, something is going on. They've just seen this guy in the electric tower and the farmer and the sheep that were eaten. Clearly, there's a problem. So what we have is heroic work rather than staying for money. They've now defined themselves as heroes to at least... Spread the word before they run away. (laughs) As they're heading back to town, they pass the road workers they saw earlier, and they stop to tell them that they should get out. And, of course, the road workers don't pay any attention to them. One of the workers has a drill, and he's drilling into the concrete on the road. And then suddenly we see red blood start to gush up. He's clearly hit one of the worms. Hit a gusher. Yeah, that's not going to end well. (laughs) So back at the store, they try to use the phone to call out, but of course the phone is out. So Valentine and Edgar get back in the truck and head out again. And Valentine says, we decided to leave this place just one damn day too late. Yep. (laughs) Just like this was my last week on the force. (laughs) And as they're driving out yet again, they come across a rock slide, which happens to be where those road workers were supposed to be. And when they get out, all they can find is a bloody helmet. Yep. Again, easy enough to telegraph to the audience something terrible has happened that we can pay for a buck ninety-eight. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
And I have to say, I mean, I'm not anti-CGI, but I do like practical a lot. And a film like this just would have been really different if they'd had the CGI at the time. Yeah. There are many, many shots they would have been able to do differently. And I think sometimes it's helpful to have the limitations of practical to really get you to be creative. Oh, yeah. This, this was the age where the transition was happening. Mm. I mean, there were some CGI effects that were easy, well, easy-ish to do because they had been pioneered, but the Uncanny Valley was not your friend. This was this yeah. was the way to do a lot of stuff. This film draws from a lot of stuff from the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, the whole story or the premise is uh, it's a lot like them. Because right? it's a oh yeah, you know, giant, giant scary monster. <laughs> there, there are matte paintings. There are you know matte paintings, miniatures. My favorite when you were talking about the store, right? They did some really exciting things when they were constructing it. So there were hydraulics in it, right? In fact, the shaking things from the Universal Rides earthquake were used for that. Hmm. But my favorite is you will remember. One of the worms goes under the the porch, right? And all the boards flip up. Right, right. Well, what that is, is a float buoy tied to a strong rope, tied to the axle of a truck. And off camera, you rev the truck and go, and just goes in order. <laughs> huh. So, yeah, could, could that have been done more expensively and, and really fancy with mechanics? Yep, that's not how it was done. <laughs> well, that's neat. Well, I was just thinking when when that happened, the boards didn't scatter every which way. They were it was you know they it was well, sort of they like were a hinged. rolling wave. Yeah, but exactly. Was, they were they were hinged on on the one side closest to the wall so that they didn't scatter and you would see the gag. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was uh, that was neat. I actually have a note about that when we get to that point of the movie. So as Valentine and Earl are freaking out and attempting to drive away from the workers who've been killed, something latches onto the axle. Well, it's, it's presented as being, they're just, he backed up too far into the hillside and he got caught on it. That's what Earl thinks. Yeah, that's their perception. And he's really slamming the gas, but it's taking way too much effort to get out. And when they get back to the store and take a look, it turns out there's a giant snake wrapped around the axle. The first reveal. Yes. Yeah. One of the things I think is really clever about this film, compared to many, many horror films, is we now think, oh, these snakes are the problem. As we'll find out later, that's a misdirect. <laughs> the snakes are a very, very tiny part of the problem. Yep. <laughs> if it were just the snakes, they could deal with it. Well, and you also have the idea that, okay, the phones don't work. Is this thing malevolent or did they just get lucky? We don't know. How intelligent is the beast? Yeah. And now we really see the economic sophistication of Valentine and Earl because Chang they have a big negotiation with him and they think they're being clever and he ends up paying them $15 for the snake. Graboid! Which they will discover is a mistake later. Graboid! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Walter. <laughs> it's Michael Gross, Bert, who takes the snake off of the axle 
and examines it and says, you know what? There's no way this snake ate all of those sheep. Yep. There's a lot more going on here. Mm-hmm. So again, he's not an idiot. In fact, he's the first one who starts kind of figuring stuff out. Mm-hmm. And now we see the doctor and his wife at night, and they clearly really love each other. And they're building their dream house out here in the middle of the desert. And suddenly their generator goes out. (laughs) (laughs) When they check it out, it seems that bizarrely it fell into a sinkhole or something. There are electrical wires going down into the hole. So they pull those out. Turns out they've been chewed. And then the generator gets spit out of the ground. (laughs) They don't know what's going on. So they start making their way back to their car. But on the way, the doctor gets sucked into the ground and apparently eaten by something. Mm -hmm. His wife is understandably freaking out, and a snake comes after her. She gets in the car to drive away, which doesn't seem to be a bad idea. Mm -hmm. And now we see a whole bunch of snakes hitting the car all at once. Now, an interesting thing here from having watched the the behind-the-scenes materials is there is some slime that you see on the windows from the worms. But the special effects guys had this idea that they didn't want slime in this film. They felt that was an aliens thing. They wanted to distinguish themselves. So they wanted things to be dry. And what Mm -hmm. they discovered when they did the first screening is when they hit a scene that's coming up in the future, which had a bunch of slime, the crowd went crazy. So they decided, screw it. We're doing slime. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's, it's like shooting underwater. It's like. Okay, we're in the desert. Desert day. They wouldn't <laughs> waste water like that. Oh no, no, we need it. It's it's what people expect out of a big monster. <laughs> yep, that's true. <laughs> There's just a part here where, as as she's fleeing into the station wagon, there, uh, or yeah, it's a station wagon. She uh, yep. she knocks over a radio and it starts playing country music. And I thought this was going to be one of those things where oh it turns out we find out that the <laughs> monsters are they hate country music and they run away when that happens and but it uh, it, it 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 turns out that was the the radio does play a role but a different one so i just guessed the wrong role it played <laughs> so she's in the car she's trying to get it going she's having a hard time getting it to start up And one of the things we'll see is that these worms get more and more intelligent over time. Mm -hmm. So they start figuring out what they need to do with this car. Mm -hmm. And they start sucking it into the ground from the back. And she's trying to get it going, and it's sinking into this hole they've created. Now, a funny thing I saw from the background materials is what was supposed to happen is she was supposed to get on the hood Mm -hmm. and try to fight these things off. The problem was the dirt that they were trying to pull the car into was, I'm not sure what it is, but it's something that was very absorbent. It's, it's vermiculite. Uh, it's the stuff you use to, um, aerate soil for potted plants. It also comes in, in back around because it's part of the dirt mix that I would make for the miniatures so we could push a puppet through it. (laughs) So we'll get back to vermiculite, but yes, if vermiculite gets wet, it becomes, well, solid. It's like a giant <laughs> sponge. And so the car wouldn't sink. Oh, no. We, I, I heard all about this. <laughs> this was literally last night of filming. And since they'd spent all that time trying to get the car to sink, they didn't have time for her to get on the hood and do all that. They, they raised the berm to give the effect. 
Now, you would never mm. notice. In fact, it looks perfectly fine in the yeah. film. And the last shot we get is the headlights going up. Did I mention Ron Underwood was a problem solver? Did I mention that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I think the the headlights, you know, shining straight up and then going out one after the other. I th I thought that was really a an eerie mm -hmm. effect. I, I thought it worked very well. So back at the store, we see that Chang has immediately commercialized the snake that he bought for fifteen dollars. He's charging people three dollars to get a photo with the snake, <laughs> where they're pretending to get attacked by the snake. And Valentine and Earl realize that they've been had because Chang is going to make way more than $15 off this snake. And then they're all sitting around debating what to do. And eventually they decide that somebody should take Chang's horses, because he has horses for some reason, and ride them up into the mountains to save everyone. And they ask who knows how to ride horses. And it turns out to be, of course, Valentine and Earl. Of course. And this is another case where even though Bert and Heather are the silly survivalists, mm -hmm. they come and say, here, take our really good guns. So once again, they provide a really useful function. I think, I think there was a kind of a gag here. Cause I think only Heather gives over a gun. If I remember right, because, uh, Valentine was pleased with himself because he got the yeah. good weapon. Uh, you know, they did the rock, paper, scissors for it again. And then I think Heather came along and gave her much, much better rifle to Earl. So he ended up being the whole, the one who came out ahead in the long run. A cute little gag. Good point. I didn't catch that. Meanwhile, there is this annoying teenager, Melvin. Oi. And we haven't really covered it, but he's been being annoying all along. And now he comes out pretending to be attacked by that dead snake. And Bert almost shoots him thinking this is real. And then tells him, you came this close. Yeah. And Melvin is the closest we have to a bad <laughs> person in this movie, but he is just a stupid teenager. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's the boy who cried wolf. He, he does this again and again. <laughs> so on their way out of town on the horses, <laughs> Valentine and Earl stop by the doctor's place to see how he and his wife are doing. Yep. And they go there, they can't find them anywhere. They're not sure what to think. And then Valentine hears the radio. Yep. But they can't see a radio, so where is that coming from? So they end up digging in the dirt and finding the headlights of a car. <laughs> and they realize what's happened. And now they're really freaked out, and they jump on their horses and start galloping out like bats out of hell. <laughs> Very Western-like. Things just got real. Yeah. <laughs> and as they're galloping, they're yelling plans <laughs> to each other. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We are going to get out of here. But, of course, before they get far, both Valentine and Earl are knocked off their horses. And then snakes, or what we're going to find in a bit, are really tendrils. Well, there's something here that surprised me as a viewer, given everything we've seen which is this is the first time they realize these things are coming from underground. Mm -hmm. And Valentine shoots one yeah. of the snakes, and they think they've done good. And then before they can celebrate, the ground under them opens up, and the reality is there's this huge worm. You get the first reveal, yes. Yeah, and it's got a big bony jaw up in front, too, like this, like the prow of a ship or something. It's scary. <laughs> yeah, this thing is like 10 times bigger than what they thought they were dealing now, with. Now, by this point, 
the suspension of disbelief has happened. You you care about the people, you care about the thing, and the idea that a 40-foot-long worm swimming through the desert doesn't seem to phase anybody. They're all just willing to buy in for that, which is good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so they're now off their horses, running like crazy, and the big worm has gone underground in order to chase them. Now, here's something I noticed watching the background materials done 10 years later. Uh-huh. Not one person says the word Jaws, yep. which I suspect is them probably trying to avoid certain legal <laughs> issues. Mm-hmm. Because this is basically Jaws Underground, right? It's Land Shark. Let's just be honest, okay? <laughs> and here, as they're running along, we see one of the things that was taken from Jaws, yeah. which is, in Jaws, there were these yellow barrels that would get pulled under the water, and that's how you could see the shark without actually seeing it. In this case, they're running alongside these fence posts, yep. and the fence posts are going down one by one, yep. which is right out of Jaws. Yep. <laughs> And another brilliant way to not show the creature. Yes. Mm -hmm. A much easier way, a much easier thing to do. <laughs> they then see a concrete trench. Presumably this is there so water can yeah, flow through it. We don't really know. Yeah, it's 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 a um a flood flood control thing. So yeah. Okay. And they jump over that to the other side, and the worm smashes through the concrete trying to get to them. And ends up killing itself in the process. Cracks its head. Yes, it does. And this is the scene with all the slime that they learned from the audience reaction. We have to do slime. Well, and orange blood. You know, that was great. Just, we got to make it different. Orange. <laughs> orange is a good color. <laughs> and this is where they discover how large this thing is. Because mm. they realize this thing is like 30 feet long. And Valentine gets the classic line, I found the ass end. Well, and you also get an idea that they smell terrible. Okay, the the actors really sell the idea that there's more than you know. Oh, yeah. This thing has more than one dimension. <laughs> and while they're checking this out, Rhonda shows up, <laughs> the student, and she calls this the most important zoological discovery of the century. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yeah, it could be. And she realizes this must have been what was tripping her <laughs> seismographs. And while Valentine and Earl are all excited because this time they're not going to get cheated they're going to sell this thing for a lot of money she has this insight looking at her charts she realizes you know what there are three more of these things mm -hmm. because her charts show movements in different places at the same time so it couldn't have been just one right so they've got a lot more to deal with yep now you know the threat is bigger than you thought and then as they're walking by her nearest seismograph it starts registering and they realize they're in trouble so they scramble for the nearest big rocks that they can find. And now we get to a really interesting point in their conversation, because in the background materials, the creator, Ron Underwood, said, everyone's always asking, where did these worms come from? And he's like, I don't care. No. <laughs> but there's only a certain number of possibilities. So what they decided <laughs> to do in the screenplay is just have them list them all. So between Valentine and Earl... They speculate and say, well, it could be aliens, it could be radiation, it could be the government, or they could have always been here. And they just put it all out there, and they don't try to explain it in the end. Well, and you have, you know, the representative science gal, right, so that you have the information that you need, but it doesn't spoil it because she has no idea. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and they never. Uh, well, spoiler here: they never, they never do reveal. Leaves them room movie, for a uh, sequel. Where yes. they came from? There have been seven sequels, so maybe one of the seven sequels answered the question. <laughs> I can't say. Only blame me for the first one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I saw. Uh, I saw today uh, that the uh, there, the fourth one takes place in the Wild West. So I might, I might get a kick out of watching some of the sequels. So they sit on these rocks for hours. And this is another important plot point because, okay, the worms must have left by now. Mm -hmm. So Valentine gets out a two by four and goes down the rock and smacks the two by four on the ground. And instantly one of the worms comes up. And now they realize why someone was in a power tower for three days. <laughs> so these creatures are very patient. Yeah. And they talk about how do they even know we're here? Mm -hmm. And they finally realize it has to be our vibrations, not only from our movements, but even from our voice. They're that sensitive. And as long as they can detect us, they're going to stick around and wait for us to dehydrate or whatever. So our heroes end up staying on the rock mm -hmm. overnight and kind of accidentally Valentine and Rhonda end up sleeping right next to each other. After they stayed overnight, Valentine takes a shovel and throws it out, and a worm immediately eats it, so absolutely nothing has changed. Yep. Valentine yeah. and Earl spend a bunch of time arguing about what to do. They're not paying any attention to Rhonda. She has ideas, but they're not listening to her. So eventually, she ignores them and goes and finds a very conveniently sized, pole vault-sized piece of wood. Synchronicity. And she says, we can pull vault from one set of rocks to another set of rocks. <laughs> and they're able to find three pole vault shaped pieces of wood so they can all do it. So that's very nice and convenient. Actually, those rocks were the, the key reason why they took that location because yeah, they, that, they, that's sort of a, the, the key part of the point there and, you know, beautiful background and mountains and things. But originally they were doing a location scout that would take them to Utah or, or Nevada because different states add money to support films shot in their area. And they were trying to find ways to extend the budget. And it turned out this simply was Ooh, better yeah. than any place else they found. And these shots actually look really good, especially when they're all pole vaulting at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, that one scene there where the three of them do it simultaneously, each to a different rock in, in, in line. It's a, it's a neat little shot. <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of curious how many times it took them to get that shot. More than one. <laughs> <laughs> so they eventually reach Rhonda's truck and they pull vault into the back of the truck. But of course, instantly the worms start going after the truck. They, they, they don't know how to deal with cars, so they're going to get to work. <laughs> And I love this bit because Rhonda goes head first through the window into the cab. That means she's hanging onto the steering wheel with her hands and she's trying to start the truck. And then she's trying to press the pedals with her hands, just trying to get the truck going. And Valentine and Earl seem to be happy that everything seems to be going great. And she's like, you've got to get in here and help me. I'm doing all this with my hands. <laughs> Yeah, see, it, it, by this point in the film, you realize it's a buddy comedy masquerading as a uh, as a monster movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's really uh, 
I have to say, I mean, well, I, I guess I, I should save this for the end if this is going to be a worth watching question, but uh, uh, I'll give it away. I, it is worth watching. <laughs> okay, so they all make it to the store. Turns out Bird and Heather, the survivalists, are gone. They're apparently driving around trying to shoot things. And everyone's thinking someone's bound to come and check on them once they realize the lines are down and there's no communication. And then we see a scene that is perfect for this kind of movie, as we've been talking about, because we see this truck with lights going, and there's a helmet nearby, and we don't see any people, and we know exactly what happened. Yep. They've checked the line. Yeah, yeah they have. Oh, dear. <laughs> and then Valentine pulls out a map and points out that the worms have been going from one end of the valley to the other. And have been eating people all the way along, and they're about to get to the store where these people are at. Yep. So they can't be comfortable. <laughs> Rhonda proposes that they get to the mountains where the worms can't get through the rock. But, of course, that's a long ways away. And meanwhile, the stupid teenager again screams and pretends to be attacked. And surely this isn't going to go wrong for him. And, of course, moments later, the same teenager screams again, and they get extremely pissed off, but they do run out so they can teach him a lesson. And it turns out he has gone way up a pole, and he's bloody, and it's clear that finally something has actually happened here. <laughs> now we see the full-size worm burst out of the earth, <laughs> and they run back into the store. And this is a big deal, because up to now we've seen the individual snakes and the one large dead worm. This is the first time we saw a live big worm actually come out of the dirt. Yep, it's active. And now I'm going to hand it over to Guy to take us through the second half of the film. <laughs> well, Alvin's the annoying teenager. <laughs> And he runs into a shed near the store. The others run into the store. The floor and shelves tremble. Uh, it appears that the worms, the graboids, have gotten underneath the store. Uh, Rhonda tells everyone not to make noise, and uh, they keep their voices down. Uh, and there's a sound from the street, the sound of a sweet little girl bouncing around town on a pogo stick, which we, we've seen earlier I'm under less stressful circumstances. Now, if I remember right, when she <laughs> was cast, she was asked if she could, you know, pogo. And being <laughs> even a young actress, understood the answer was yes. And then leaving the interview, <laughs> went to her mom and said, we have to buy one of these things. How does it work? The classic is, can you ride a horse? And the answer is always, yes, I can ride a horse. Exactly. I understand she get, got to be quite good by the end of the film. <laughs> are, are you gods? <laughs> yeah, she doesn't seem to have any problem with it. But yeah, she uh, in the first scene where it was introduced, I think she actually was counting like 600 hops or 640 hops or something like that. Right. And the other part is she has some kind of, earbuds in for her radio yeah oh a walkman type thing yeah <laughs> so she's bouncing around down the street uh through the town the main thoroughfare and uh 
obviously that's bad because that is what the, uh, the graboids detect. So Val, uh, being basically a good guy, uh, he runs out of the store, uh, and he snatches her off the pogo stick and the stick while it's still upright is sucked into the ground. Just in time. <laughs> yeah. And Earl and Rhonda had, uh, had come out to see what was happening, uh, but Val had run on ahead of them. So he tells Nancy, who's Mindy's mother, he tells them both to run to their house and get on the roof. And Val goes to the roof of his truck, which is nearby. The truck starts shaking and the tires start to go flat. The graboid's doing a number on it. Earl sees one of the other sheds nearby shaking, not the one that Melvin ran to, but this is the arrival of a new worm. So Earl runs back to the store, and uh, it's not quite clear why, but uh, Rhonda instead runs for Melvin's shed. But on her way there, she trips on some barbed wire. As she's trying to extricate herself, the ground swells beneath her, and that makes her roll which has the effect of wrapping her ankles more tightly in the wire. This is pretty effective, I think, in terms of feeling like, oh, she's really in danger. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, having watched those season one and two episodes of Doctor Who, uh, you know, the people stumbling and falling <laughs> is getting a little old. <laughs> but, but, of course, this was not uh, made by people who had <laughs> gone through two seasons or, you know, a season and yeah, never mind. <laughs> Suffice to say that for this movie, it works very well. So she's got her ankles wrapped in barbed wire, which is not a good situation generally. The graboid grabs a fallen fence post, which was what was holding up the barbed wire, and starts dragging it closer to his mouth. Val grabs a pick that's nearby, you know, a mining pick, and he hits the worm, digs it deep into the worm, actually. And uh, the worm knocks him down for his trouble. And it didn't really end up doing a whole lot of damage. One of the uh, one of his little moth tentacles, the, the things that we previously thought were snakes, comes out and just extricates it. He runs to Rhonda after he gets himself up off the ground. He can't get her out of the barbed wire. It's pretty, pretty well wrapped there. Uh, so instead he tells her to get out of her pants. And it's uh, actually a pretty good solution. I don't know if I would, would have had the presence of mind to think of that. Yeah, there is an unfortunate history in this kind of film about how can we get the woman into her underwear. I, I've, well, uh, you know, Valentine's wanted to be in her pants the whole time. So it's like, oh, it's a great idea. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Look, the legs go all the way to there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So he takes her boots off while she's trying to struggle with the pants and she gets free just as the worm lunges for the pants. And it gets the pants, but it doesn't get her. Then the second worm shows up, the one that previously had just arrived in town. But they make it back into the store. And this is where we get that effect we talked about earlier. The store has a porch uh, of wooden boards, uh, and it extends away from just the front of the store. It's kind of a boardwalk that goes out for a little ways past the porch. And we see that undulating. We, it's like a big wave going through it as the worm is digging underneath. And it's a, it's a good effect, and that's, a, that's what we talked about a little earlier. Inside the store, Val is tending to Rhonda's wounds, and uh, 
I, I made a note here that the blood looks like blood, which uh, you can't always rely on in movies. You know, sometimes it looks like very obviously not blood, but it's convincing here. Bright red caro syrup. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that looks good. <laughs> He's putting a disinfectant on her wounds, and I, this just struck me as a little memory because it's something you don't see anymore. Well, that's just disinfectant has a plastic applicator wand. It, it isn't Mercurochrome, which I would have been using back then because it was 1989 and Mercurochrome was still around, but it's not bright orange, so that gives it away that it's not Mercurochrome. But anyway, Mercurochrome ended up being effectively banned in 1998, so there's a whole generation out there now that doesn't even know what the hell I'm talking about. It always worked for me. I lived this long anyway. <laughs> But the reason they banned it is because the, the active ingredient they called the bacteria and stuff was mercury, which is not something people like to have their kids drink by accident. So, you know, you could, there's arguments on either side of it, I guess, but I miss it. <laughs> anyway, Earl is watching approvingly as Val and Rhonda talk because he's trying to play matchmaker here. Kind of, or at least uh, give a little encouragement where I can. Uh, and Miguel brings sneakers and pants. I'm, I'm guessing they were just things that were for sale in the general store here. But anyway, she has sneakers and pants. And they have some conversation about how they can get out of town. There's a Jeep trail that goes up the mountain, which would put them on solid rock and out of the grasp of the graboids. But they need a four-wheel drive truck. And as they're discussing all our options here, the the big fridge uh, that we saw squealing earlier, excuse me, and uh, I, don't, I don't think we brought it up. There are actually a whole lot of callback type things in this movie where something that just randomly happened or seemed random at one point comes back to play a big role later on. And this fridge had started squealing earlier. I think uh, Walter said there was a bearing going out or something. Um, and now it starts squealing again uh, in the presence of these worms that are sensitive to sound. So Val and a couple of other of the other people in the store, they run over to unplug it, but it's too late. Uh, by the time they unplug it, the damage is done. The worm heard it, and it bursts through the floor, and... Uh, this is very unfortunate uh, because it's a character I liked a lot. The the worm eats Walter, so they're they're one human fewer in the town now. Suddenly, it's just a big old worm party with all the worms in town smashing through the floor. Earl, Val, and Miguel climb up on the shelves near the wall uh, to reach a trap door that leads up to the roof. Rhonda gets into the shelves that are down in a row running down the center of the store and she jumps from shelf top to shelf top but a worm uh whether it's clever or just by accident it sets off the chain reaction it topples one of the shelves that falls to topple the next shelf like dominoes and that ends up throwing Rhonda, who has made it to the shelf nearest one of the windows that throws her out the window so Val gets up to the roof, and he looks over the edge. He sees a lot of stuff lying on the ground that used to be on a shelf, but he sees no trace of Rhonda. 
it turns out very soon that she's crawling up the ladder, uh, up the water tower next to the store. So she's fine for now. Melvin gets spooked by a little worm intrusion and he goes to the roof of his shed. So at this point, pretty much everybody's on the roof. Uh, and Bert and Heather arrive home at this point. And Heather looks, looks through binoculars and she sees everybody in town is on one roof or another, but whether, whether it's the water tower, the store, the shed, Nancy's house. Unusual behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, we don't really see what the town is like on a normal day. So maybe that's just what people do. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, it probably is unusual. And Bert tries to contact the town on the CB. He doesn't get an answer at first, and that's because the CB isn't on the roof. It's it's actually in the store. So Miguel and Earl hang Val by his ankles, and he grabs the CB through one of the store windows. So it's a little risky gambit, but it works. And then uh, Bert and Val talk <laughs> together, and uh, uh, Bert. Bert doesn't seem to understand the urgency of getting up onto his roof. Bert is, or Val is really trying to persuade him, but uh, he's not sold on it. And at this point, Heather does something that normally wouldn't uh, make much of a difference. But she has what looks like a big rock tumbler. It's it's a big, uh, like a big bucket full of, full of sand. I think it's meant for cleaning spent shell casings so they can be reused. Yeah, and it's it's how you clean reloads. Okay. But she turns this on and, uh, you know, it, it vibrates a lot so that the sand will clean out all the brass. When this vibration starts, that draws the worm's attention and they make a beeline for Bert's house. So Bert and Heather are preparing their rifles and the whole basement suddenly starts shaking. This is the point, uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier where there's a there's a cinder block wall in the basement, and on it, there's a pegboard loaded with tools. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, that yep. pegboard starts to swell out from the wall, and then the center of the cinder block wall collapses, and a worm pokes its snout into the basement. And this was this whole effect was a miniature, which it did not look like that to me. So, very good. <laughs> good work yeah. there. Well, you know, the, the, the whole idea is this movie gets a lot of good press from gun people because mm. they did the weapons right. Oh, okay. I don't know enough about firearms to know all the details that they got right, but I, I just in the general sense that a movie, even treating gun people like they're not complete jerks, is uh, <laughs> probably refreshing to a lot of them, so. Well, you know, the end of they shoot it up some and then it's breaking the glass to, you know, get the elephant gun, yeah. right? Because, yeah, it's, it's, it's a 460 Nitro Express. It is one of the more powerful, <laughs> powerful weapons uh, that aren't military grade. Oh, you know? yeah. A question for you, Ray. When you're switching back and forth between live action and the miniature, how do you make it so we don't say, oh, that's a miniature? There are many, many cases, especially in Doctor Who episodes, where you're like, oh, yeah, that's a miniature. Mm -hmm. But as I said earlier, I couldn't find the miniatures in this. Mm -hmm. So what it involved was um, a lot of work with uh, Denny Skotak and uh, Mark Sheldon, bless his soul. He was our, our effects gaffer. And the idea is that with lighting, 
and a bunch of reference shots from live action. Okay. To build a miniature, you have to sort of get, get scale of sort of the, okay, this is the thing. This is how we're going to scale it for the size we have. But it's not just building it. It's now building it. It's painting it. It's matching the lighting so that you don't have that jarring. I don't know why it doesn't fit, but it doesn't seem right. Okay. Trick. And uh, speed. The idea is to have the effect be visual for only a short period of time and find a way to cut so that when you cut back to the physical thing that's already there, your brain fools you that you saw something you didn't. <laughs> Very Yeah, that's, that's why the joy of the whip pan in that scene, because of the movement, your brain fills in a bunch of things. Hmm. Very good. It's uh yeah, it's almost like uh probably very similar to like uh stage magic or something like that. I mean just mm -hmm. the misdirection aspect of it. <laughs> well that's that's exactly so. Very often you can't and you don't want to build out a background miniature in such detail that every detail is done. You don't have that kind of time and budget mm -hmm. ever. Right. So what you have to do is figure out what the most important element of the scene is going to be spend your time on that right uh that's that's the hero piece it's where your eyes are going to be and the rest close enough is good enough mm -hmm. and then it'll happen so quick you you see the thing your brain overlays the rest of it on the pieces sort of like data points on on where it sits and yeah, we're there. They're pretty cheesy, but they work. You know, you're not going to be on camera for that long. Oh yeah. No, this is this is kind of a digression. But do you ever find it useful to get things from like uh, model railroad catalogs? Uh, you know, the dollhouse uh, supplies, things like that. Or or do you prefer to just make things from scratch? When you can get something in the correct scale, right? Or you can modify something with not a great deal of effort you know yes it's a chair it's close okay we put a little putty on it and with that and paint it now becomes the chair we need yeah. that's so much faster than building it by hand well okay i stand corrected in the 80s that is so much faster than building it by hand <laughs> uh now with cnc printers you know yeah. miniatures is a different world again you can make little nerdies and things Assuming you have enough computer skill to make the digital mold right. to have things print out for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I imagine that has uh, yeah. changed uh, changed a lot of things. Huh. Yeah. Very good. Well, I'll get us back to the story here. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's good to, good to know. So the rifles, both husband and wife, have their own rifles, and they're doing some damage. Not much damage, though, but fortunately, there's a whole wall of rifles, not to mention other firearms, pistols, shotguns, <laughs> whole nine yards. So they're, they're well equipped. They have a lot of friends who would envy them uh, greatly. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, why, it's why giving the boys a gun wasn't as big a thing as you thought. <laughs> <laughs> a tentacle grabs Bert's ankle. But Heather shoots it with a shotgun, and a couple shots are enough to sever the tentacle. Uh, so he, he got out of that one for now, but he's still got a giant worm in the wall of his basement. There's a lot of shooting and weapon swapping. 
Then Burke breaks the glass on a cabinet, and it has what looks like a long and shiny long arm rifle, shotgun, something. Turns out to be loaded like a double-barreled shotgun when he loads it up. It's an elephant is, gun. Yep. That's the, the biggest thing he's got. <laughs> yeah, and it's got pride of place in this own little glass cabinet there. And he loads two very large rounds into it. And he puts both rounds right in the worm's mouth, and it dies. So that's two rounds from an elephant gun plus miscellaneous shots from other weapons. That's the recipe for <laughs> killing a worm. Bert and Val, they talk on the CB again. Bert and Heather get on their roof. The town is elated by the victory. And Earl has a line here, which I, uh, I enjoy because I'm, I'm a uh, longtime resident of flyover country myself. Earl says, well, I guess we don't get to make fun of Bert's lifestyle anymore. <laughs> so then another worm lurks around Bert's house. It's just sort of sniffing around, making the, making the dirt move around. Uh, the paving stones are rippling up. There's another one sniffing around the store, and it seems to be planning out a strategy. It's feeling out the weaknesses of the store. And then we get an interesting effect where the whole rooftop of the store ripples like a, like a bouncy castle or something. That was the best thing, uh, best comparison I could think of was uh, it just sort of, it just waves up and down, maybe like a, I don't know, trampoline or, well, not trampolines don't really do that, like a parachute or, I don't know, <laughs> something that waves a lot. I don't know how they did this. Maybe Ray has some insight, but the person who built this town, he had two months to build the entire town. He built this roof so that you could collapse it repeatedly mm -hmm. and then just bring it back up to normal for the next shot. And I have no idea how he did that. <laughs> yeah, it's a neat little effect, and it's hard to, hard to imagine exactly how it's done, but uh, <laughs> it's good, whatever it is. Yeah, what I understood was he repurposed some of the earthquake mechanics from the Universal Earthquake ride over at oh. uh, Universal Studios. Oh, yeah. When they decommissioned that. And so they're big pistons that can move a good deal of weight because you're dealing with a car of, you know, six people, mm -hmm. right? So roof lines and things, if you construct them correctly, can be shifted up and down fairly easily that way. Uh. But, you know, I've a really had to do some creative stuff to think of how to build it in the beginning because you want to do this so that it's you know there as opposed to well now we've got this room how do we make it do that no no you do that from the beginning yeah yeah that's part of the design it, it would probably be somewhat doable if it, if it was just like a parachute painted to look like a roof you know then you'd just have people underneath raising poles and stuff but this thing had to be strong enough that the actors could actually walk around on it as it's rocking up and down. So yeah, it's, it's impressive. Yep. So another worm is uh, sniffing around Nancy's house and then it goes to sniff around Nestor's trailer and Nestor does, it doesn't go well for him because uh, the worm knocks the trailer over and he's Nestor's knocked to the ground. <laughs> Nestor must I don't know. Maybe, maybe he just panicked, but, uh, uh, everybody's yelling at him, get up on a somewhere high. And the high place that he settles on is he's got a great big tractor tire lying on the ground. 
and Nestor sits on it like he was floating on an inner tube down a river or something. And that's not really high enough off the ground. Now, I'm going to say Nestor's real problem is that he was never a major enough character for us to remember his name. So when things went bad, he was doomed. Yeah, yeah, he never really did get a big role. But uh, (laughs) whatever role he had ends now because he's sitting on this tire like he's floating on an inner tube and he gets sucked right down through the center hole. And, And this is something that I noticed here and in other places, like when Rhonda gets scratched up by the barbed wire, there, there are a lot of opportunities. And especially in the 1980s where they really started making a lot of really gory movies, they could have made this whole movie a lot more sickening (laughs) than the, than they did. I mean, we see some gore, but it's usually, you know, mainly the, uh, blown up worms, you know, and they've got bright orange on the inside. So, uh, you know, it, it does, it, 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 it's not a movie that's really going for the gross out. It's just showing you enough to let you know what happened. Well, the idea that it really harkens back to all those big radiation monster movies in the fifties, right. it really does. I mean, mm-hmm. this is them, you know, oh, yeah. the Navy Earth is still, it's just a lot of that. And there was very little of that then. So, mm-hmm. you know, they tried to do as little of it as they could. And I mean, yeah. the, the idea of getting sucked into a giant tractor tire, there's a big hole they did with a backhoe and they put the tire over it and it's a really cheap trick. <laughs> <laughs> it worked though. It was good. Made, made a good Yeah, exactly. Scene. In different hands, it could have been a much more, uh, just, you know, make, make you think about it much later. <laughs> where where this is more, uh, you know, it, it's disturbing, but it's quick and it doesn't really like, they're not aiming to give you nightmares here. They're aiming to just give you a little, ooh. <laughs> yeah, it's, right. it's, well, they, they want to ratchet up the danger, but you know, they don't want to slow down. Right. By now the plot's a real sleigh ride. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it is a, a throughout, it's a pretty fast paced movie. You don't really have a lot of, uh, getting bogged down and stuff. You know, they introduce the characters and off we go. <laughs> so anyway, the worm, after taking care of poor Nestor, it heads for Malvin's shack. And we're cheering at this point. <laughs> <laughs> we see that, uh, Bert and Heather still have a visitor at their place. One of the other worms. And, uh, Bert's not having any luck shooting through the dirt. Yeah. Dirt is an effective bullet stopper, he says. We see the worm traveling under gravel and paving stones. You know, the, the rectangular concrete slabs on top of the gravel. And, and this is a good effect. It's similar to that, uh, the boardwalk porch effect that we talked about earlier. Um, yeah. And it's a little, Same idea. little similar to a scene and a thing that Ron and I watched a few months back, a show called Quatermass and the Pit. Uh, there's a scene in oh my. where the gravel, uh, starts undulating like that. And, uh, so it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a neat, a neat effect. And we're going to see this more, but this is the first time we really see that it's investigating things and putting together a plan. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's it's becoming more intelligent. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's learning from its experience. Sure. Because it, uh, the next thing it does, uh, after traveling, traveling under this gravel, 
it gets to Bert's nice four-wheel drive truck, the one that might actually be able to handle the Jeep trail up the mountain, and the truck begins to shake, and the tires pop, the nose sinks into the dirt, and that's not going anywhere for now. <laughs> so a worm starts getting serious about taking out the store. It takes down one of the big wooden roof, I don't think awning would be exactly what to call it, like a roof overhang maybe, takes it out. And uh, Val and Earl discuss what kind of vehicles they need to get out of town. I think they uh, they suggest a tank, which they don't have. But <laughs> then again, maybe they do, because <laughs> off in the distance, uh, a little ways out of town, not real far, I guess maybe a quarter mile, be less even, they have a Caterpillar front loader. According to imcdb.org, I looked this up, it's a 977L. So if you ever want to buy one that matches the movie, that's the model you want to look for. So they're formulating a plan that will involve that caterpillar. And the worm attacks the store again. The roof nearly collapses this time. These attacks are getting more severe. Miguel crawls down the side of the store. There's a lawn tractor parked down there right next to the store. He ties the steering wheel in place with a rag. Meanwhile, as he's doing that, Val and Earl do rock, paper, scissors, and Earl wins, which means he'll take the chance of running for the caterpillar. Uh, he's going to, and this is, you know, this. We haven't mentioned this, but throughout the movie, they've been doing rock, paper, scissors to decide stuff. Yeah. Usually Earl is not the one who really takes the initiative. You know, it's usually, I mean, uh, if he, if he has a, a chance not to do something, he'll let Val do it. But in this case, he <laughs> seems more eager to do it. He wants, he wants to be the one to, to go for the caterpillar, you know, and the, when the chips are down, he, he'll actually step up. So that is the plan as far as we know. And meanwhile, back at Miguel, he sends the mower on its way. And it works well. He's tied the wheel in place. It drives nice and straight out into the town. It looks like it may have a good run. On the roof, uh, Val gives Earl a handshake before Earl heads out. But this is a fake out. Because right as soon as uh, Earl goes to reach for the handshake, Val socks him in the gut and then jumps down to go down to the front loader himself. So he's showing that Val's our hero. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's not going to let his buddy Earl risk him, risk his life on that. So the mower's intended to be a distraction as Earl or Val, in this case it'll be Val, goes to the uh, goes to the caterpillar. And the mower, it works. It's a good trick. Uh, it has a good run and it gets uh, gets some interest from the worms. But eventually, it hits a dirt embankment beside the road, and it finally flips on its side. And it does it too soon because, uh, because Val hasn't reached the caterpillar yet. So they redirect towards the sound of his footprints, or footsteps, rather. It gets up to him, and he holds very still. They've, they've demonstrated already that if they hold still, it, chances are the worms won't know where they are until they move again. And some tentacles come out of the dirt very, very near his feet. So he's, he's in a bit of an awkward situation here. The villagers, they make noise to distract the worm, you know, try to, try to draw it away from him. But one of these tentacles is getting real close to his feet. So Rhonda comes up with a plan. She goes partway down the ladder of the water tower that she's been hiding out on. 
she starts kicking a pipe on the side of it, on the side of the tower. And Val ends up having to do a little jig because the tentacle's sweeping back and forth. So he's got to, he's got to try and dodge it. But at the same time, he can't, he can only lift one leg at a time so that he's not making noise by jumping up and down. So it's a very tense little situation that he's in there. But water starts pouring out of the pipe that Rhonda's been kicking, and the worm goes to check it out. So finally, Val gets the cat started. And, and you know, in movies, the typical thing would be, you know, he turns the key and it's like, Rrr. but no, actually, in this case, it just starts with no problem. And he hooks up the trailer, and the trailer is neat, because I figured it was going to be a big box trailer, you know, like your typical semi-trailer. But this is like a big metal half cylinder. Like if you've seen a barbecue grill that's made out of a 55-gallon drum cut in half, it's like that, except it's much, much bigger and much thicker metal. We see that, meanwhile, while he's getting all that arranged, the worm has gone over to the water that's puddling beneath the water tower, and the tentacles are thrashing there. And they reach up and pull the ladder off the tower, but Rhonda still seems safe on the platform for now. Uh, so a lot going on at the same time here. Val gets the caterpillar and the trailer moving. He drives into town and begins collecting people. And the tentacles try to grab the treads of the caterpillar, but they don't have much luck. They don't get any purchase. They just slide off. Bert and Heather are on their roof preparing pipe bombs, and the caterpillar and trailer pull up. And they, they had, a I think, probably a good decision as far as pacing. When the trailer pulls up, it's already all loaded up with everybody in town. You didn't have to see them pick up everybody individually. Just mm -hmm. Left that out of the scene. It was keeps things moving. Yeah. There's a little bit of tension because the worms try to dig out under the caterpillar, and Earl pulls it forward a little. But he can't do that too much, or Bert and Heather won't be able to jump in. And they're not jumping in because they're debating what to bring. So it's just, you know, the, the tension mounts a little bit. So they just end up bringing a whole bunch of stuff in these big duffel bags. But they do leave some stuff on the roof. So they didn't bring everything, at least. And Melvin asks for a gun. And Bert says, I wouldn't give you a gun if it was World War Three. I get a kick out of that. And then they're off into the desert, and the worms don't seem to be around. Uh, nobody can see any sign of them. And then Miguel jinxes everyone by saying, maybe they just gave up, you know? <laughs> sure. But no, they, uh, they see some dust plumes off in the distance, but they're not coming closer. They travel further, and suddenly the front end of the front loader sinks right down into the dirt. It turns out that those clever worms dug a pit trap. So fortunately, it's not the whole loader that goes down. It's just the front end. So everybody's okay for now, but they're, uh, they're kind of, kind of in a bad situation here. The graboids start messing with the trailer, but Bert throws out one of his pipe bombs and the worms hightail it out of there. Not for long. They start heading back, but it does, it does really drive them away pretty quickly too well and they've got sensitive ears if you will right can right detect movement that's loud yes exactly and Rhonda Rhonda comes to that conclusion actually uh, in just a moment she'll uh, have a have a helpful idea because it looks like they can all make for this group of rocks not too far away they're uh, it's a similar group of rocks like uh, the ones that we saw in the pole vaulting scene uh, that type of thing 
but it's not real close to the trailer. So Rhonda suggests throwing a bomb in the direction they want to go so that the worms will go the other way. She speculates they don't, the bombs don't scare the worms, they hurt them. It's just, as you said, too loud. Um, and it turns out that's a pretty solid strategy. It, uh, it works all right. But Melvin's hesitant to make the run, but Bert gives him a revolver. <laughs> it seems like he softened up. As they run for the rocks, they see a dust cloud. Melvin tries shooting in it, but just hears a click. So Bert, uh, Bert's judgment wasn't quite as impaired as we might have expected. The worms give chase, but everybody makes it to the rocks. So the humans are on the rocks and trying to plan their next move. They speculate that they could go to the mountains just by using the bombs, but there aren't nearly enough. They estimate it could take 50 bombs. There's a little tension now, as Bert says they could have made a stand at his place, and he calls Val and Earl screw-ups. Yeah, it's not entirely fair, because he didn't really object when they were proposing this whole plan, but, you know, he has a good point. He does have a lot of weapons. Yeah, he did have a lot of food and ammo and stuff at his place, but the reality is the worms were going to take out the entire building. Right, right. Yeah, the, Val and Earl probably did ultimately have the the better plan, but it's just a, just a little bit of tension here. You know, it's a, it's a tough situation. So Val, uh, being called a screw up gets in Bert's face for a moment, but Earl and Heather both break it up They're They both handle it pretty well. And then we see a little bit of time has passed. It's a little later now. Everybody's just kind of lying out on the rocks. Everybody's more calmed down. Bert says if it comes to starvation, he's taking a bomb out into the desert and he's going to take out one of the worms with him. Earl says that's not a bad idea, or rather it gives him an idea, fishing with bombs. And this actually is a pretty good idea, I think. First they throw rocks out into the dirt to lure a worm. Then Earl uses his lassoing skill to throw out a bomb on the rope with the fuse lit. He drags it back slowly. The noise of the dragging gets the worm to spot it with precision and swallow it. And then it blows up. Turns out the worms are very bright orange on the inside. You know, we've seen, we've seen them from different angles, but this, <laughs> this particular scene really emphasizes the orange. I mean, this is like a, like a, a vest, a hunter. <laughs> it's, it's super bright. Yeah. They use like pumpkins to make this really orange. Oh, okay. And the best part is that yep. bits of orange worm rain down all over the rocks where the humans are heading out. So that's uh, <laughs> it's pretty funny. Good for a chuckle. Also, I just imagine all the production assistants who were throwing this crap at the actors. <laughs> well, and, and they really wanted to get it done in one take because otherwise it means cleaning the rock. Oh, yeah. And then waiting and for it to it dry and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I hope that whatever they were throwing didn't, uh, didn't smell like the worms were supposed to. <laughs> so their first fishing expedition was a success. So now Val's going to fish for the second one. It's his turn. He wants to throw the bomb out there and it's a good throw, but this worm is smarter than the last one. It takes the bomb, but immediately spits it right back out and very forcefully. It goes way <laughs> up in the air and it spits it right back at the rocks where the humans are. By now, we, we, I think we get the reveal that this is Stumpy. This is the one 
that tried to get mm. Mertenville and grab the truck right. and lost one of his uh, lost one of his tentacles. Right. He, so he's the craftiest one of the lot. Yeah, yeah, he's the one. He he became stumpy when he lost that one tentacle on the axle there. Yep, and he is a, a, a clever one. And the the bomb that he spat out it lands right on top of the bag of bombs, which is not where you want a bomb <laughs> to land, Rob. I'm not sure this makes a lot of sense because you couldn't just blow these up. You would actually have to light them. Yeah, it would. Well, you know, we need a quick excuse to deprive our heroes of their resources. (laughs) This will work. Yeah. Yeah. It would depend on if the bomb had enough force to penetrate the metal on the other pipe bombs or even one of the other pipe bombs. Because if it could just penetrate one of the other ones, then presumably that next one could penetrate more of them and so on. So, but uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've defined that it's pretty powerful because it blew up a worm. Okay, so that's a pretty good bomb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm willing to accept the movie's reasoning on this one. <laughs> it lands on top of the bag of bombs. Everybody gets behind some taller rocks. Uh, puts those rocks between let's, themselves. Let's just take a moment for physics. These are 30-foot worms swimming through sand, okay? We'll go with the bomb. It's all right. <laughs> and they, uh, they, they managed to all get away from the range of the exploding bag full of bombs. And there are, most everybody's shielded behind some taller rocks, but Earl, Val, and Rhonda are three main heroes. They ran out into the dirt to get away from the bombs, and the worm is after them. So they all hold still, which uh, is a trick that has worked for them, but, you know, you can't push your luck forever. We see that Val's holding one last pipe bomb. There's one left. The worm pops out of the ground and snarls. So the people on the rocks start making noise uh, to distract it and draw it towards the rocks, and the worm submerges. But Val whispers to Earl, this one's not falling for it. This one ain't dumb. He's right. This is the clever one. But then he has a little surprise in store, Val does, because he takes off running into the desert and says, I got a goddamn plan. (laughs) And Earl and Rhonda run with him, which is good because she's the one who has the lighter. (laughs) It turns out that they were very near a big cliff. Probably the same cliff we saw in the opening uh, scene. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so they all get up to the cliff, and then uh, they can't really go any further unless they want to take their chances jumping, but that wouldn't work well, as we see very soon with the worm. Val lights the bomb, and he throws it. He throws it towards the worm, and Earl says he threw it too far. It went right past the worm, right behind it. But actually, that was just right, because as we've seen with these bombs, when it goes off, it makes the worm move faster in the direction that's away from it, which is the direction the worm's already moving. So Val's got a big old rippling mound of dirt with a worm under it coming at him. And at the very last second, he rolls out of the way. And uh, in a very enjoyable shot, the worm shoots right out of the cliff face. And, uh, and then we, we see it splattered. We toss the miniature out of, out of, out of the polyfoam cliff and down he goes full of bladders, full of orange goo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yep. One of the interesting things here is if you did this film today, <laughs> this would all be CGI and we'd see one continuous shot. Right. Yeah, and it probably wouldn't look as good either. No, I agree because the thing is, this is practical mm -hmm. and they had to divide it into three or four shots yep. to be able to get it, mm -hmm. but it made it look more realistic. If you'd had just one continuous shot, your brain would have said, this is CGI. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. No, I think it, uh, I think it worked, uh, just, just fine with the, uh, with the tools they had available at the time. <laughs> and again, when you look up at this point and see this hole in the cliff, and I'm like, how did they put the hole in the cliff? Because I still didn't realize the cliff didn't exist. Yeah. Whist, whist. <laughs> and then the actors are actually, well, the deal is the cliff, because it's made up and is very small. Small is relative. <laughs> small is relative. The, <laughs> the cliff is made out of polyphone. And it is on scaffolding, and it is three stories high, okay? And to make the actors look small enough in relation to the hole, okay? So the, the hole itself is, you know, somewhat somewhat small because we put the six-foot, maybe, five-foot, maybe, worm puppet out the hole and down, right? So it's in scale with the mountain. We now have to put four stacks of scaffolding on the peak of the roof of the warehouse so that people can stand on it and line the shot up so that now they look in scale with the hole for the worm that's supposed to be 30 feet high. So, yeah, there's some math going on. <laughs> well, it turned out good. <laughs> it was The work was worth it. <laughs> I didn't notice any of that. Right. That's the point. <laughs> So the worm splatted on the, on the rocks below and Val says, well, it just suddenly hit me, you know, stampede, which is the callback to the very first scene where he wakes up Earl by yelling stampede. So, uh, back in town, we see everyone cleaned up. Val and Earl are putting new tires on their truck, which we'll find out they got from Bert. There's also a police car parked outside the store. So probably number of hours have passed because they would have had to get word to Bixby, although, although not necessarily because after the lineman went missing, somebody might have uh, sent the police out there. It, it did. It's a little while later at any rate. They're putting the replacement tires on their truck. Rhonda comes up and gets a picture of the two of them together. And she, uh, she says there's going to be some major research and she'll be in on it. Which makes sense because the worms make tunnels and she's the, you know, geologist. So, uh, yeah, I can, I can see that she can be involved. <laughs> Earl, he's looking under the truck hood being nonchalant. He's not involved really in the conversation, but he's listening to it. And Val is, uh, kind of quiet and awkward. Rhonda says, maybe I'll see you sometime, which to... You know, a lot of people would be a fairly obvious invitation for more attention, you know, but, uh, <laughs> Val, Val doesn't seem to respond right just then. He says, uh, uh-huh. So she says, well, see ya. And she walks off. Earl slams the hood. Val says, I know, I know I'm working up to it. <laughs> so he gets his nerve steeled and he walks fast to catch up with her. 
He's muttering to himself as he does about what she would want with a guy like him, and she's going for her damn Ph.D. He catches up to her finally, he stammers a little, and then she kisses him, and the credits roll over them, kissing in the road at the edge of town, and there's music, country music, it's Why Not Tonight by Reba McIntyre, who we also know as Heather. So she get a double role in this movie. And then at around one hour, 34 minutes and 10 seconds, we see an interesting thing in the credits. Uh, it mentions uh, for Four Ward Productions, the miniature construction crew, Ray Greer and Rice Ruskuski. Did I get close on that pronunciation? <laughs> yep. Yep. And they're... Steve Brion was the uh, the crew chief on that as well. So we were all in there, all in there together. <laughs> and actually, well, well, we've got it. Before we moved too forward proper, when we were working at Mark Williams' shop, uh, Roy Kinnearum, who used to be one of my roommates, and he's still in the business today, Ooh. was helping us out with uh, him and Stephen Lebed doing miniatures. So the original ending which you can find on youtube or various places valentine and earl had finally escaped they were finally leaving the town and that was the end mm. so what happened was they previewed this with an audience and at the end the audience was literally chanting they have to kiss <laughs> kiss her kiss her <laughs> So they reshot the ending with <laughs> Valentine kissing her just to make the audience happy. <laughs> well, yeah. This is this is why you have test screenings. <laughs> yeah. I submit that yes, if you are a famous auteur creating your vision, yeah, okay, fine. You you don't bother, you you make art. Mm-hmm. This is the man's first movie. The fact he got it off the uh, off the script and onto film at all. Uh, if, if, if is that what the people paying the bills want to do? Okay, let's do that. <laughs> and you know, there were a number of things they they, they fought them for in in uh, casting. There were a number of things they fought them for for. Uh, originally, they wanted to have a to explain the worms and b to sell better better in international. So the Japanese love earthquakes. So they were going to try and do a thing like that to tie in the, the geologist a little more and, you know, eat a few goats to, to start the thing. And mm. fortunately, that never happened. They, they tried. They talked them out of it. So yeah, it worked out good. Whatever formula they finally settled on, I thought it was a really enjoyable movie. I, uh, I really don't have any complaints about it. I just felt very, very satisfied afterwards. <laughs> like it was time well spent. So our end of podcast question is always, is this worth watching for a modern audience? Now we've already heard from Guy. So how about you, Ray? Yeah. It was certainly one of the best films I ever worked on. It was, it was magic. It, it does some fun things and it holds up. Mm -hmm. I think it has some surprises and it's really good. Yeah. So with that, is there anything else you want to tell us about Ray? Anything we haven't asked you about? Wow. Gosh, no, I think I, I think I hit most of the high points. No, of course I hit them out of order. So we'll see how this works in post. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so pretty much 
you can say that this is a, a quintessential item of there's never enough time and there's never enough money, but it's surprising how far and how wonderful that this thing turned out. And if Ron Underwood does a movie, even if it's not a genre film, make time for it because you won't be disappointed. The guy is good not only to his craft, but to his crew. I mean, when he came to visit forward to do the to do the the worm drop and then stunt doubled for the shot, he learned our names. Uh. Okay, we're 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 background people toiling toiling in the mines. He learned our names. Okay, good. Thank you so much, Ray. It was such a great pleasure to talk to you today. Yeah, thank you. It was a great uh, pleasure, guys. Yeah, for me too. Are we out? Well, see ya. I know, I know. I'm working up to it. What am I doing? I think what's a woman like her want with a guy like me? She's going for a damn PhD. Yeah? I, I, I just wanted to.
Yeah, it it had it had some really top notch effects in it, um, and the comedy of the Dark Man thing was having to add shots after the location was no longer available. <laughs> so yeah, that Dark Dark Man's a, a piece. Um, you know, it's funny. So all of us, all of us in effects, um, worked really hard, but the person who never gets any credit is Elaine Edford. Um, <laughs> now she was the producer for, um, forward at that time and basically got us anything we needed. So she, she and Bob, they were married at that time. They had been married. So they worked really well together. And so while we were trying to do this thing, because of course, we're we're now in post production. They're almost done with with physical location shooting. the The race is on to get this thing out, right? Which means, of course, there's never enough time. And all the time they thought they were going to give us, nah, that's not happening. Just just rush. <laughs> um, Ollie doesn't get enough credit. She she came up big <laughs> often. 